Hi there, this is Pastor Aaron of Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church, and we pray that through the preaching of God's Word that you were encouraged and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you have any questions or comments, uh, you can find us at www.fairviewcornerstone.com, and uh, please write to us. We'd love to uh, hear any questions or comments. We pray the Lord encourage you through this sermon. Seems strange to us, perhaps, blessing and sorrow, blessing and weeping, uh, uh, maybe even more so to a degree, seem like such a contradiction to our minds. We don't think of sorrow, we don't think of uh, sadness as having anything valuable. It's something, especially in our culture, that we, we do all that we can to avoid um, we want to drift into um, even entertainment before we will allow true feelings of sorrow, of sadness to be felt in our souls. Um, I think even our culture loves to uh, surround themselves. You know, I think of even uh, comedians and those whose l- job it is to make people laugh. And I don't think Jesus is saying there's anything wrong with laughter, but there is most definitely a place. In the, in the true Christian's life for sorrow and for sadness. And so the question is, what type of sorrow is to be present in the kingdom citizen? What is Jesus talking about? And as Christians, remember he is talking to his disciples, to those who profess his name, that they are blessed uh, even in their weeping. And he says, for you shall laugh. And so as I was thinking about this, um, I was thinking that maybe a helpful thing for us this morning would just to be looking at some examples in the scriptures of some different types of sorrow that we see and, uh, and, and then hoping to gain a, a better understanding of what Jesus is referencing here. How are we to understand blessing and sorrow to come together in the Christian life? And um, so we're going to actually start, first of all, with the warning Um, some examples of ungodly sorrow in the scriptures and what I believe Jesus does not mean when he says, blessed are you who weep now. And then we will see the the godly example of a sorrow that is honoring to the Lord and we will close with the future hope of the laughter that Jesus speaks about. And so first of all then, the warning to us, I think as we consider the scriptures we, we see, uh, sorrow present um, right from the time of the fall, even into the last days as the people of God endure tribulation and trial. But there are times in the scripture when we find a ungodly sorrow, a useless sorrow, if you will. And I think it's important for us to understand those categories so that when that type of sorrow is present in our lives, that we are able to discern uh, that it is not honoring to God, it is not going to be blessed as Jesus speaks, and that we would turn from it and seek a godly sorrow. And so we have a few examples in the scripture of, of uh, this sorrow. And first of all, I think there is a sorrow that weeps over the consequences of one's sin, but is still inward focused. There is a sorrow that is a kind of self-pity in the scripture that I do not think there is any blessing attached to at all. And perhaps one of the clearest examples of a kind of sorrow like this is the person of Esau. 
And you remember what happened with Jacob and Esau, that um, Jacob was home, he had made some delicious stew or uh, some kind of soup. I don't know, I kind of think of it as maybe corn, corn chowder or something, which is one of my favorites, which you know, I'd consider maybe trading my birthright for it, perhaps in a time of starvation. But whatever, whatever it was that Jacob had made, Esau comes in from hunting from a long day, and he's very hungry, and he requests some of this soup that his brother had made. And Jacob says, I will give you some for your birthright. Esau being the firstborn, and, and he says, well, whatever, what's it to me? I'll, if you give me some of that soup, go ahead and, and have my, my birthright. And we find later that Esau had a type of sorrow over what he did, and in fact, the author of Hebrews references this for us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17, and he uses it as an example of an ungodly sorrow, a useless kind of sorrow that we should not display as kingdom citizens. Hebrews 12, and the author of Hebrews is admonishing the Christians. He says to allow, uh, back up to verse 15 in Hebrews 12, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And so Esau experienced the type of sorrow, even we're told there were tears, as he realized the, the consequences of his foolish decision, and yet there was no true repentance um, before God, Esau's sorrow was a type of self-pity. Uh, there was no real repentance before God that he had been foolish, that he, had, um, that he had, had disregarded even the blessing of God in his life. There is this kind of inward self-pity sorrow that is not godly, is, is, is useless um, in the life of a Christian. This is very evident in young children, but I think as adults, if we're honest, we would we would confess that we are guilty of this at times as well. But we've all seen the child who is caught in disobedience, and uh, they know that they're going to have a consequence because of their foolishness, and there are tears, and there is this degree of sorrow. But there is really no regard for God. There is really no, there's really no understanding that, as David said, that against you only, O God, have I sinned. There is this kind of human level of sorrow that uh, maybe even a child will experience at times, but ultimately is a useless kind of sorrow that is inward focused. Um, Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, if I hate sin because of the punishment, I have not repented of sin. I merely regret that God is just. There is a type of sorrow that simply dis dislikes the consequences, dislikes the punishment, and really regrets that God is a just God and that he does, in fact, punish sin and disobedience. But it is not a godly sorrow. There's another type of ungodly sorrow that we see in the scriptures, and it is a sorrow that leads to despair and to hopelessness and ultimately into death. Um, it is a sorrow that is, again, not uh, a sorrow with regard to God. 
And we see this in the life of even Judas, who had some degree of sorrow for his sin, some degree of regret for what he had done, and yet, in the end, it was a useless, godless sorrow. Matthew 27, we find the very sad account of Judas as he realizes what he had done in betraying Christ, that he had handed over the very one who had loved him year after year, who had even washed his feet uh, hours before he would be betrayed. And as Judas in Matthew 27, 3, we find, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. And then they take the pieces of silver and they buy the potter's field. And so we see there is a sorrow in the scriptures that leads into despair, that leads into darkness but ultimately, again, has no regard for God, no true repentance before a holy God seeking His mercy and His grace. From the outside looking in, it would almost seem that Judas had come to a place of repentance. He, he understood what he did was wrong. He had a level of regret. He didn't even want to keep the money that was given to him for his crime. But we find that it was again inward focused. It was a sorrow that was really sorry for Judas, and it was not sorry that he had offended a holy God. It was not a sorrow leading unto life, but unto death. And we need to be careful and aware of that type of sorrow in our life as Christians. Um, I think the sorrow which Jesus speaks about in, in the Beatitudes here is, is not a sorrow that leads to death. And he makes that clear with as of all of these. It is a, a, a season of suffering, a season of struggle, a season of, of uh, mourning, but it will give way to laughter, Jesus says. It will lead to life. And uh, as the psalm says, that though the sorrow may last for the night, the joy comes in the morning. That is the type of sorrow that Jesus is talking about. And so there is no glory in a sorrow that causes us to go into despair, into hopelessness, into a type of darkness where we are tempted to take our very life only to relieve the pain. In John Bunyan's little book, Pilgrim's Progress, well, it's not really that little, it's quite long actually, but it's always interesting how he portrays as Christian is on his journey to the celestial city, he encounters various uh, foes, and sometimes he encounters friends, uh, ministers of, of God who encourage him and who point him onto the path to continue to press on. And as he encounters the rebuke of God, sometimes he would wander off the trail and God would send the evangelist or God would send an angel to correct him, to rebuke him, but they would always point him back onto the path, onto that straight and narrow road leading to the celestial city. But when Christian encounters an enemy like Apollyon on the road, I think it's interesting uh, how, how Bunyan portrays 
the uh, condemnation, the type of sorrow that Apollyon would produce in the heart of Christian. It is a condemning sorrow. It is, it is a sorrow that is trying to lead him unto despair and unto death. It is to get Christian to take his eyes off of the grace of God and to really feel as though there is no hope at all for him to be forgiven. That is a very dangerous godless kind of sorrow that we must be aware of. Um, As a Christian, you need to learn to discern in your own heart when there is this kind of sorrow, maybe over the consequences of your sin, maybe over just the effects of sin in general, as we see humanity experiences great pain, Death, disease, brokenness, futility in work, frustration in bringing up children, all of these things that sin has brought upon us, and it can weigh upon us, and it can produce in us at times overwhelming sorrow. But you need to be aware if that sorrow starts to lead you into despair and into darkness and to where death itself would seem to be a welcome friend, then you need to call out to God for mercy. You need to find Christians who will, who will shine the light of the gospel upon you. You need to seek out help because that kind of sorrow is not of the Holy Spirit. There is a sorrow that leads to death. And uh, as Christians, we must always be holding the gospel before us, even in times of sorrow, as, as difficult as it may be that that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, Paul says in Romans 8, that his blood has fully atoned for all of our sin. And so if you find a sorrow in your heart that is condemning, that is um, compelling you into despair, into hopelessness, then you need to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace of God, that, that hope of the joy of his forgiveness and ultimately the glorification of of all things. And then there is a third type of useless sorrow that I want us to be aware of in the Scripture, and of course this is not exhaustive. There could be other um, categories, I'm sure, but flip for a moment just to the last book of the Old Testament, to Malachi. And again, these should stand somewhat as, as warnings for us as we consider sorrow in the life of the Christian, that these types of sorrow... Um, are not to be present in the, in the kingdom citizen. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 13. So Israel is in a state of mourning. There is sadness. And we find um, Malachi 2 verse 13. Well, We'll get, we'll get both of them actually first. There's two reasons that God tells Israel that, uh, that he is upset with them, that they are experiencing this time of mourning. And uh, he says, first of all, back up to verse 11, Judah has been faithless and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. 
May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this and who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So the first thing that Israel has done, that God is angry with them, that they have joined themselves to the pagan nations of the world. This is really a picture of of the people of God who are set apart, have joined to themselves all manners of ungodliness, of worldliness, and they have made it their own. And in this very real sense, as Israel was forbidden, they were marrying uh, wives from pagan nations. So this is not God forbidding uh, interracial marriage. This is the people of Israel as the people who have been set aside, who are in that Mosaic covenant, as the people that are to represent God in the world, joining themselves to those nations that have rejected God, those who have declared false gods to be over them. Uh, in the New Testament, you might see this express itself in that we're, we're commanded to not be unequally yoked. And so it has nothing to do so much with, with skin color or ethnicity. It has to do with the condition of the heart, with the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. And there should not be this joining of darkness and light. And the people of Israel were doing this. Secondly, we find in verse 13, listen to what he says. Again, we see a type of sorrow here in in verse 13. The second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So there is a sense in which Israel feels that God is distant. He is not hearing their prayers. He is not accepting their sacrifice. He is not blessing them anymore. And they're weeping over this. There are tears and there is a a degree of sorrow. And yet listen to what God tells them. But why? uh, But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and the wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with the portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself and your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord God of hosts. So guard yourself and your spirit and do not be faithless. And so there is a sorrow that somehow acknowledges the Lord is distant. He is no longer uh, blessing with his presence. He's no longer hearing prayers. He's no longer receiving these sacrifices. But at the same time, they're disregarding his commands. And that type of sorrow in the Christian's life is useless. If we are sorry about the consequences and the struggle and the pain that we're experiencing, the distance of God in our life, and yet we're ignoring his plain commands, then the sorrow itself will do us no good until we repent and acknowledge the offense. And so all of these stand as a warning to us, as, as a type of sorrow that we should, we should flee away from, that are, that are not blessed, as Jesus would say, But then there are examples of God honoring sorrow in the scriptures. And again, we'll see three types of God honoring sorrow. So the the warnings, there was a sorrow that is is inward focused and is is self-pity. There is a sorrow that is 
uh, leading to despair and to hopelessness and ultimately death, and there is a sorrow that disregards the disobedience in our own life. But now as we look for godly examples of sorrow in the Christian's life, um, especially in the Old Testament as you read through the, the minor prophets, you see this sorrow that there is a weeping for the rebellious and the lost. There is a weeping for the rebellious and the lost. And I think that type of sorrow should be present in the Christian's life. And, and no doubt we see this uh, in the example of a prophet like Jeremiah, who is actually called at times the weeping prophet. He had a ministry of weeping for the rebellion of God's people and for the lost around him. And he at times was so overwhelmed with what he had seen. We find a passage like this in Jeremiah eight twenty one. It says, The harvest is past and the summer is ended and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Oh, that my head were waters and that my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah eight twenty-one. Jeremiah looked out at God's people and he saw their disregard for his commands. He saw the, 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 the idols that they had brought into their worship. He saw the brokenness that had come as a result of their disobedience. And Jeremiah wept for the people of God. We see this in, in the life of Jesus as well, a sorrow for the rebellious and the lost. In Luke 19, 41, we read this. It says, when he drew near and saw the city, and this is just after the, the uh, uh, Palm Sunday entrance when Jesus is, is riding and, and he comes over the hill of Bethany and he, he looks out and, and down below in the valley there he sees Jerusalem. And as he sees Jerusalem, Jesus begins to weep for the city. And he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And Jesus weeps for the unrepentant hearts of God's people. He weeps for the brokenness that is going to come upon the people of God because they will not repent. And Jesus Christ himself, God in flesh, cries, he weeps, he experiences this sorrow for the people of God that they might repent. And that should be a part of the Christian's life. There should be a sense in which we, yes, it's, you know, it's easy to be frustrated with, our, with, with maybe government or you know, politics or an economy, or we look out at uh, maybe um, a lack of integrity in, in uh, a business or something that would upset us, and it's easy to complain. But when was the last time we actually wept for our country, wept for our government, wept for those who are standing against God and in, in due time will face severe punishment? 
for the lost around us? Is there a sense in which our hearts break knowing the gravity of what is going to come upon them? Yes, now there is this season of what seems to be prosperity and ease, but even as um, Asaph would consider their end, it was sobering for him that they will be swept away like the chaff. And that should produce sorrow in our hearts. Paul experiencing, experienced this as well. Um, some of the st- strongest words of Paul we find as he considers his people, Israel, and their disobedience to God, the breaking of the covenant. He says in Romans 9, My conscience bears me witness, in verse 1, in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And as Paul goes from town to town to town, proclaiming the Messiah has come, God has fulfilled His promises, Jesus Christ, the descendant of David, is now reigning, and and synagogue after synagogue after synagogue rejects the message. They beat Paul. They chase him out of town. They call him a blasphemer and a a man who is filled with an evil spirit as they did Jesus. And as Paul considers what this means, his heart breaks for the people of God who have turned their back on their Messiah. So that is one type of sorrow. It is a sorrow for the broken, for the rebellious, for the lost think there's also then a sorrow in the Christian's life that should be there, a sorrow over the destructive effects of sin. A sorrow over the destructive effects of sin. In John eleven thirty five, again in the life of Jesus, we see a time when he wept. And it's puzzling to us maybe because it's as he comes to the grave where his cousin Lazarus is buried and is the, the sisters Mary and Martha are crying and they're upset and, and uh, they, they're saying, Jesus, if you had been here, he, he wouldn't have died. And as Jesus takes in this scene of, of the pain and the brokenness and the loss that everyone is feeling, we're told that Jesus wept with them. Now, why did he weep? He knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew that, that in a matter of moments, Lazarus would walk out of the tomb and he would be restored to his family. What is it that produced this sorrow in the heart of Jesus? I think no doubt he's identifying with humanity in the brokenness and the pain and the loss that sin has brought upon this world. And it should cause us to be sorrowful at times. Even the life of Job very much is a picture of this. Job did not experience loss because of sin that he himself had committed against God, like his friends had thought. But he experiences a demonic type of suffering that God allows. God completely, uh, Satan must come before God, we know, and ask permission to, to test Job. And in fact, God even would point Job out to Satan and say, have you considered my servant Job? But we must understand as well that that God is not the author of evil. He is not the one 
who brought sin into the world, that came as a result of disobedience. Nor is he the one that tempts man to sin. That we, as we are carried about by our own desires, we give ourselves over. And so as we look at the brokenness of this world, the effects of sin, the, the effects of the curse which God cursed humanity with, with thorns and thistles, with death itself, with disease, all of these things came because of mankind's rebellion against God. And it should produce in our hearts a type of sorrow and at times mourning for the new heavens and the new earth when all of this is is made new and transformed and the brokenness is repaired. So there's a sorrow that weeps for those who are rebellious and lost. There is a sorrow that, that feels the weight of the destruction that sin has brought and it produces in our hearts a type of sorrow. And then thirdly, a godly type of sorrow, there is a weeping over our personal sin against the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter in Luke 2.22, you know this story as well. In many ways, Peter's crime was just as great as Judas's crime. They both had betrayed Christ. Judas maybe more in, a, in an active sense uh, as he actually leads the Roman guards to Christ and betrays him with a kiss. But, G, but Peter also denies Christ even to a young servant girl and says, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know this man. I have no, I have no dealings with Christ. I, I don't want to identify with him at all. And Peter betrays Christ. And yet in Luke twenty-two sixty-two, we find that Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. But Peter understood that his offense was ultimately against Jesus himself. And Peter displays a sorrow before God, and he experiences the restoration of the forgiveness of Christ and goes on to become a great instrument in the hand of God in the spreading of the gospel. There is a sorrow in the Christian's life that as we look at our own shortfalls, we look at our, our disobedience at times, our hard-heartedness at times, the, the, the things that are in our hearts, even as, our, as we battle with our minds sometimes, the, the thoughts that we can think, and as we consider all of that before a holy God, there should be seasons of sorrow before God that we have sinned against Him, that our offense is ultimately against God. And we understand that it was not just the Romans and the Jews who crucified Christ, but as we sing in that song, um, how deep the Father's love for us, the line that we sing, that it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And you consider that your sin was part of the crucifixion of Christ, that Aaron Hale's Aaron Hale's lust, his pride, his selfishness, his doubt, his anxiety, all of that was part of nailing Christ to the cross. And until that debt was paid, Jesus hung there. And that should cause our hearts to mourn over our sin, to, to despise the evil that we give ourselves over to and we consider that it put Christ on the cross. And I heard an example um, by uh, I think Todd Friel, I believe, used it. But it, someone asked the question that 
Can a Christian go on sinning after having believed in Christ and, and received his forgiveness, being born again? Can they go on sinning with no repentance? And he used the example that that, that would be like a father and a son that go out camping. And, and, and a little ways away, there's a lake that is known to be infested with alligators. And the father looks at his son and says, listen, I'm going to lay down for a rest. Whatever you do, do not go out into that lake. There are alligators there. It is dangerous, and, and, and they would probably kill you if you do that. So please don't. And the father lays down and rests, and then the son, becoming bored after a while, says, oh, it can't be that bad. I'll just I'll give it a try. I think I could manage it. He goes out into the, onto the lake in the boat, and after a few moments, the boat starts rocking, and he's thrown into the water. And alligators start attacking him and biting him. And his father hears his screams and he wakes up and he, he jumps into the lake and he fights off alligators and he himself is being bitten and, 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 and wounded and he drags his son out of the lake and, and saves him. And, and the, the picture is that for the one that would go back into sin would be like a son who stands up after that and jumps back into the lake. No regard for the sacrifice of his father. No regard for the pain that his father had just gone through to rescue him. So is the Christian who goes on sinning after having professed that Christ has died for me, that he has suffered to set me free, and yet going on with no regard for our disobedience and what it cost our Savior. There should be a sense of sorrow in our hearts when we sin. And if there is not, if you are able to sin with no sense of brokenness, with no sense of remorse, then I would question if you know the Savior at all. And that is important that we understand this type of godly sorrow in the life of the Christian. It is what David describes in Psalm 51 after having been confronted by the prophet Nathan for his sin with Bathsheba. And he he prays, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And we should have a sense as Christians when we sin. It is not just against our brother and sister, as much as we need to reconcile those relationships. It's not just against um, our spouse or our children, but ultimately it is against God. And when you talk to your children about disobedience, make sure that they understand their sin, their disobedience is not just against mom and dad, but it is against a holy God who is just, and who will punish their crimes, and that they need to flee to Christ and be forgiven. And that is the case for all of us. So we see these, I think, three types of sorrow which are to be evident in the life of the Christian. A sorrow of brokenness for the lost and the rebellious. A sorrow that feels the effects, the devastation that sin has brought, and a sorrow that acknowledges our own sin before God. And then we'll close with just a brief thought about this time of laughing that will come. 
we all know that it's a joy to, you know, you get together with maybe family or, or uh, different holidays and, 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 or just with people that you enjoy and, and there's often laughter that takes place as part of that fellowship that you're enjoying being together. And, and it's a beautiful picture of the hope that we have in Christ. That there is coming a day when we're told every tear will be wiped away, when there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more pain. And that Christ says, for you who experience the sorrow of, of this life and the devastation of sin and all of its effects, there is coming a day when you will weep no more, when all will be made new. And uh, I think we all know the little hymn, We're Going to See the King. And maybe we'll sing a line of that. It's, um, no more crying there, we are going to see the King. No more crying there, we are going to see the King. I think you all probably know that, that hymn. Um, no more crying there, we are going to see the King. No more crying there, we are going to see the King. No more crying there, we are going to see the King. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we are going to see the King. No more dying there, we are going to see the King. No more dying there, we are going to see the King. No more dying there, we are going to see the King. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see the King. Amen. That is our hope when we are joined with Christ. Lord God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you, God, that you are even able to identify with our weakness, Lord, with, with our struggle. Lord, while we know that Christ was without sin, he did feel the, the pain that has come as a result of our sin, Lord, and he conquered all on the cross. And in rising again, stands as the great hope of the new heavens, the new earth, bodies that will sorrow no more. And Lord, as we partake, would we examine ourselves? Would we, would we confess sins that need to be confessed to you, Lord? And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for tuning in today to the sermon uh, preached at Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church. And again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at church at fairviewcornerstone.com. God bless.